Maybe we should forget the teachings, clear the floor, bring the cookies in, and have a party. Often in many previous years on the Monday night that's close to Christmas and New Year's, um, I'll do teachings that are holiday stories and um, beautiful stories of people um, caring for one another um, in this time. Um, Tonight, because I've the last couple of months on Mondays I've been telling some very long stories a few of you might have been here the long story, the Arthurian legend about what women want if you don't know that story you can listen to it Um, and then uh, a a long story last time the myth myth, um, of the Buddha's last teachings Um, I decided to continue in the vein of telling big stories And we'll try to do it tonight and see if it fits with where we are. Um, So tonight I want to tell the story of a bodhisattva um, named Vimla Kirti. And bodhisattva is the um, Sanskrit word for a being who's committed to the service and care of all. Bodhi means uh, awakened and sattva means being. Somebody who's fostering well-being and awakening for beings everywhere. And I kind of want to tell it because it's just about winter solstice in a couple of nights, two or three nights. Um, And all around the world and culture, certainly in the northern hemisphere, there are festivals of light. There's Hanukkah, and there's Christmas, and there's Kwanzaa, and there's all kinds of other festivals. Um, And often, they're also um, mythological. In fact, you know, there are lots of myths. um, Virgin births, and kings, and, you know, coming in from the desert, and children being born in mangers, or, you know, people who can then grow up and walk on water, and turn, you know... Um, the loaves and the fishes multiply and things like that. So there's, it's a time of some, something bigger than just our ordinary way of seeing things. And I remember being at the top of Mount Tamalpais some years ago when there was a transit of the planet Venus across the face of the sun. And there were a number of people up there with some really big telescopes. And I loved looking in the biggest telescope and there was the fiery ball of the sun you could see all the kind of fiery plumes and things like that and there was this little dark round marble you know that over the course of a couple of hours slowly moved across the face of this great glowing sun sun uh, um, sun star Um, it was pretty small just about the size of the earth and I'd had this feeling that um, 
like that one going around, we're on another one of those going around taking our ride. And it's actually pretty small compared to the vastness of our star, not to speak of the whole solar system. And so there's something about the turning of the seasons and the winter solstice that's an invitation to vastness and an invitation the question is not just the future of humanity but the presence of eternity that there's something timeless and remember being as a as a kid I used to lie down on the grass on a starry night it was a fun thing to do and look at the stars but I would imagine that I was on the bottom of the earth stuck on like a magnet you know, because it is, gravity is immaculate, and that I was looking down into the sea of stars, and it gave a little kind of excitement to it, you know, not falling down into it. But here we are, you know, in this, on this little blue-green globe circling the sun, and uh, there's something really mysterious that's asked of us to awaken to. So this story about Vimli Akirta Vimla Kirti, who is a bodhisattva. Bodhisattvas basically make the vow to serve or to awaken all beings. If you're in a Zen center, every time you sit, you get in the proper posture and you often begin, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. And then you meditate. So your meditation is to serve them all. Now there's a little problem you may notice, and that is even if you take such a vow... The sentient beings you live with, for example, don't want to be saved by you. You may have noticed that. So it has to have some other meaning than that. And here's the Dalai Lama's vow. He wakes up in the morning from Shantideva, and in his morning prayers, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge for all beings to cross the flood. May I be a resting place for the weary, May I be food for the hungry. May I be medicine for all who are sick. May I be a lamp in the darkness for those who are lost. And may I do so as long as earth and sky and galaxies exist. Uh, Until all are enlightened, I vow to be here to serve them all. Some little vow like that. (laughs) But you can hear in this an imagination of what's possible for us as human beings that's a lot bigger than your to-do list or Christmas shopping or holiday shopping or things, all of which are totally fine. But the turning of the season says, there's something bigger. This mystery that we've been born into as a human being, your human incarnation, to pay attention to. And so this particular teaching, and I'll talk about it from the text of Vimalakirti, is a Mahayana sutra or or text. Um, And it's filled with story and humor and satire and poetry and magic and wisdom. Um, And it has a whole mythological side to it. Um, And Mahayana, especially these kind of Zen texts and, and so forth, it's a little bit of a reaction to the rigidity that had grown in Buddhist teachings over some centuries, the lists of the three characteristics and the four noble truths and the five spiritual faculties and the six perfections and the seven factors of enlightenment, everybody trying to do things cookie-cutter to get enlightened, the Eightfold Path, you know. And it's sort of like when Bob Dylan picked up an electric guitar and said, forget that folk stuff, we're going to do it straight out and direct. The Mahayana texts, in some way, 
said, or Zen says, you don't need those lists. We're going to have a whole different set of teachings that's vast and bigger and opens your mind in ways that have gotten rigid over these last number of centuries. Um, And we want to offer the highest possible teachings. Um, And in a way... um, they are, as you'll hear, they're tremendously imaginative. And you might say, well, what good is imagination? Robert Desnos was a, was a um, celebrated French poet who joined the resistance during the Nazi occupation, worked underground for a long time, and then finally was captured and sent to the concentration camps. And one day, he was sent first to a kind of collection point before being in the, in the, in the concentration camp where people were being um, killed, where they were being um, gassed. And uh, a whole group of Desnos and a whole group of people who'd been gathered up, other former uh, resistance fighters and so forth, were put in the back of a big truck um, and taken over to one of the concentration camps um, where people were being slaughtered or killed. Um, And they all got out of the truck. Um, People were, as you can imagine, already tired and emaciated, but now facing death, um, terribly um, bewildered and shocked and so forth. And Desnos kind of pushed his way to the front of the line And then he grabbed the hand of the man in the front of the line and looked at it and said, wow, I'm so excited for you. You're going to live a long life. I can see it. You're going to have three more children, a beautiful wife, wealth, so fantastic, so wonderful. He grabbed another person's hand and started reading their palm and talking about all these things that were possible that were going to happen. And another and another. And the guards got kind of confused. Who is this guy at the front of the line reading palms? And then he turned around and he started reading the palms of the guards. When this war is over, you're going to have a big farm and you're going to have all these things. And he went on and on. And pretty soon everybody was smiling. You know, this this is not what was expected. They all thought they were going to their death. And even the guards got confused. And by the time he finished reading their palms, they said, yeah, yeah, get back in your truck, you go back. And they didn't end up going into the gas chamber or wherever they were supposed to go. Um, Everybody was astonished. Basically, when you're in trouble, do something really strange, you know. (laughs) And it can help you. But it also says something about imagination, that even in the most difficult times, it's possible to see something much bigger. I mean, if we could take the, I mean, it's a nice space in here, but if we could take the roof off, you know, blow the clouds away and see all the stars. I mean, that's what you want in a temple, actually. So we need to be able to envision another world a world that's not ruled as much by greed or hatred or fear, that doesn't have the kind of injustice and inequality and continuing racism and, you know, the difficulties and dangers of climate change and so forth. And it won't change unless we can envision this. We have to envision that this is possible for us as humans, and it is. We have all this outer technology that's developed. I mean, who would have imagined that you could have, 
you know, the Great Library of Alexandria in your pocket along with 2.7 million cat videos, right? <laughs> and at the same time, the outer developments of technology now have to be matched by inner development of humanity. We're a nation of nuclear giants, said the Joint Chiefs of Staff. A nuclear giants and ethical infants. And so that's the big task for us, to imagine another way of being. So, once upon a time, when you were somewhat younger than you are now, the Buddha was teaching in Vaisali. Let me see, where do I have this text? And he was teaching in the garden of Ambapali, attended by a gathering of 8,000 monks and nuns, all who were enlightened. They were calm and dignified like royal elephants, and surrounding them were 32,000 bodhisattvas, spiritual healers from all the great you know, traditions and worlds. And when um, they had all gathered there, and the Buddha was expounding the teachings of the compassionate heart in every circumstance and liberation, then... Um, the Lichavis, which was one of the groups that lived in that area, um, with their greatest bodhisattva, Ratnakara, arrived, 500 youth behind him, all these young people, each holding a parasol made of seven kinds of jewels. And they approached the Buddha and bowed down and asked for teachings after circling a few times. And when these were laid down, then by the miraculous power of the Buddha, they were transformed into a, into a single parasol, a, a canopy so great that it formed the covering for a billion galaxies, quite large. Um, and the surface of this billion galaxy was reflected in the interior of this precious canopy where the total contents of the cosmos could be seen, limited, limitless mansions of suns and moons and stellar bodies and every kind of being that exists across the universe. Um, that was the vision and power of the Buddha. So you can see we're not in regular time anymore here, right? And, and, um, and then the, the Lichavi Ratnakara who said, um, pure are your eyes and pure is your thought, immeasurable is your virtue. Um, and all that the Buddha sees can be seen with the eyes of holiness, can be seen with beauty. And so the, the, the image of surrounding the universe with this parasol is really to see that um, of jewels that there's beauty everywhere around us. Thomas Merton, if you go into... Uh, the center of Louisville, Kentucky, there's um, a placard that's there at 4th Street um, that celebrates uh, a passage where Thomas Merton came out of years as a Christian contemplative and was walking down the street and then had this revelation that everyone he passed, he said, was shining like the sun. He said, I could see a secret beauty born in them behind every eye that's inviolable and untouchable. And he said, the only problem with seeing this way is that you want to fall down and worship each one as they go by. And, you know, there are all these kind of roadside billboards and signs and national historic markers. This is the only historic marker I know for a mystical experience in the U.S. But it's like Allen Ginsberg's 
quote a footnote to Howell where he says, holy, 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 the world is holy. This whole world holy, the skyscrapers and the pavements and the cafeteria filled with the millions, holy, the mysterious rivers of tears under the streets, all of it is holy, has this vision of the sacredness of life under this great canopy. So this is where the, where the teaching begins. Um, and the thing is that we do know this in some way. Um, I can remember coming out of a long retreat or finishing. I did um, some study with a remarkable shaman, Don Jose Rios, who was at that time 103 years old. He was one of the great... Um, shamans of the Huichol Indians of the Huichol Sierras of Mexico. Um, and I did some peyote ceremonies with him. And we sit up all night and shake our rattles and, you know, trip out, whatever, and do our chanting. And then I became a redwood tree and I became a salmon and so forth. And I remember in the morning when the sun rose that everything sparkled like it was a jewel. And you all know this. This isn't just something that's fictional or that's, you know, drug-induced. It's the reality. We live in this mystery that's shining. It's what Thomas Merton saw. He said, there I was in the monastery looking for that which is holy, and I needed to walk down the shopping street in Louisville, and then I saw it. And that's really what it means in the turning of the seasons to see with a different kind of light. So here is the Buddha offering his teachings. Um, and then under this great parasol where we can see the, the, the beauty of, of, of life as it is that we participate in. Whoops. Um, then what happens uh, is that, uh, where are we? Um, the Buddha hears that a certain bodhisattva named Vimlokirti, who is a, a lay person, he's not a monk or a nun, is ill. And he wants to send all the great enlightened disciples to go and take care of him. This is one of the tasks of someone who awakens, is that you care for the world and you care for those who need care. So he turns to all these um, around him, the enlightened ones around him, and he says, would you go and attend to Vimlakirti and see what he needs on my behalf? Um, because what we know is that he's a remarkable being. He's a lay person who lives with the pure heart of a monastic. Um, he appears to be adorned with ornaments, yet he's endowed with uh, you know, the simplicity of a hermit. Um, he seems to eat and drink and yet his nourishment really comes in the heart of meditation it goes on um, and yet he's willing to enter the, enter the world to bring the spirit of love to every corner of, of, the, of the universe um, and so he's decided to live his life as a lay person um, he goes into the casinos and he teaches people about not being caught in attachment. That's the realm of the hungry ghost known as Las Vegas, right? Um, he goes into the cabarets and into the bordellos and he teaches people about sacred connection. 
Um, he demonstrates freedom and he's not afraid to go anywhere. So, but he's ill now, so you have to go and take care of him. Um, and, uh, it, and, 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 and it goes on to say, he deliberately made himself ill so that others would come and take care of him. And I remember, I don't know how many of you saw the Mr. Rogers movie, but if you didn't see it, it's really kind of wonderful. And I had mistakenly said the other day that it was Mr. Rogers had said something, but it turns out it was Mr. Rogers' mother who had said this. But she, she said to him, when there's a tragedy or a difficulty in this world, um, an earthquake, a, a tsunami, a hurricane as they had in Houston and so forth. Don't pay attention to the suffering so much. I mean, we need to. But instead, look for the helpers. And there you are, whether it's an earthquake or whether it's the fires or whatever, and you start to see people rushing in from every side, the firefighters and the medical people or in the, you know, in... in um, in Texas, it was the people in their airboats coming from Louisiana and, and Mississippi saying, you know, we will go and we'll get the people who are on the roofs and we'll get the people whose pets are lost and so forth. And there's this outpouring of love um, that happens when we're in trouble. And this is Vimla Kirti deliberately making himself appear sick so that everyone, so that he constellates or brings forth um, the love that's there, and then he can teach people. Um, and part of what's true about this is that Vimla Kirti uh, is um, deliberately turning himself toward that which is difficult. Anybody in this room not have difficulties? Please raise your hand. You can have your whatever it is, $15 back, right? It's part of human incarnation. It's part of what we are. And so we can either run from it or we can turn toward it and turn toward it in a way that in some fashion ennobles us. Um... I think, well, this is from Zen teacher Kalfried Durkheim. He says, the person who's really on the way, when they fall upon hard times in the world, will not as a consequence turn to those friends who offer refuge and comfort and encourage their old self to survive. Rather, they'll seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. In this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true awakening. And so if one wants to discover the great heart of compassion, to break the heart open, really, if one wants to discover your own dignity and courage instead of running away or being in denial, which our culture fancies is a good way to deal with stuff in the world, unfortunately, politically, you actually turn toward in your own life and you trust that your heart is big enough to hold it all. When I teach, I carry sometimes a picture. This is Vedran Smolovich, 
who was the cellist of Sarajevo in the Balkan War when Bosnia and Serbia and so forth were at war, Croatia. Sarajevo was besieged for three years. Beautiful city. Um, there was mortar fire and rocket and so forth. No one could get in and out except some UN helicopters. And people would be killed by the mortar fire. And Vedran, who was a cellist in the National Symphony, would put on his tux, take a little folding chair, and the next day go out to where the mortar had struck. And he would play this beautiful music so the people of the city wouldn't give up hope. This picture is him playing in the bombed-out National Library of Sarajevo. So what do we do in these times? And I think about it, and I guess I have to get real with you. Um, Trudy and I went down, my beloved Trudy, and I went down to uh, Tijuana to visit some of the, um, the two largest migrant shelters there, both to bring clothes and things that people could use. And we went partly because one of the teachers she'd trained at Inside LA ran a group there for both men's shelter and women's shelter. Um, and in the best of the shelters, um, they also helped some of the men get work, even temporary work in Tijuana. They had wraparound services of some legal services and health services and planning what will happen if you do go or if you don't cross the border, what are your possibilities, and then here's some work you can do for the couple months that you can stay here. And it was amazing, there was a sense of dignity and empowerment because they were being treated respectfully. Um, but here's the tough poem, written two days ago, or a few days ago, by Gustavo Barajona Lopez. Every day I open class with a morning circle. Nineteen seven and eight-year-olds sit on a colorful rug, talk about their favorite color, ideal superpowers, how they feel or who they'll be when they grow up. At recess, I read about a seven-year-old who died in border control custody after navigating the New Mexican desert. Her name is Jacqueline Calmaquin. I begin to wonder, did she make walking through the desert a game? Count the number of cacti? Make messages with stones in the sand? I wonder if she went to school. Did she have to leave midway through the year to work with the strawberry fields, you know, or water the donkeys like my father? I imagine her in my classroom. Would she color desert sunrises? Or would the deep sunset reds and oranges be her inspiration? I wonder if she knew where she was going. What was America to her? I wonder if she spoke Quiche or English or Spanish or Mom. I wonder if she knew her times tables. What is 15,000 children times two parents in a different detention facility? My students know any number of bottles of water times border patrol equals zero. Did she know the definition of terror, or did she call it fear? The not knowing tears. Who was she? Who would she have become? Who have we lost? And I read it because this is our children. And not just to have an emotional moment, but actually to say, if you were to reflect for her, 
Um, and whatever your politics, whatever your point of view about immigration and so forth, the reality is that there are these people in this circumstance. And the international governments and so forth around the world, 70 million refugees, have not really dealt with it. And if you could do something in these next weeks, one small gesture to give something, you know, to call your representative to whatever it happens to be, if you could do one little thing as a gift to those children or to those who are in that bardo in between things, um, why not do that? as part of the things you do in this turning of the year. Really think about it. What would that be? Because it's, we get insulated and we also get overwhelmed because there's so much, what do we do, climate change? What do we do, Syria? What do we do, you know, Darfur is still happening. Um, what do we do about homelessness? And they almost want you to feel like you can't do anything. It's a lie. It's completely untrue. You have agency, you have gifts, and you have the capacity to reach your hand out and mend some part of the world. And I don't think anything else really satisfies our soul as much as that. So here we are with Vimlakirti, and he decides to make himself sick after going to the, you know, bordellos and the casinos and everything else, and, and bring all those healers together. But when he makes himself sick, he also gives him teachings about how it's all a dream. Now when you're sick, it doesn't feel like a dream. It feels like a bad dream, right? It's not like a star at dawn and a flash of lightning in a summer cloud. But yet he offers a teaching that says, who are we really? Um, I was recently with Ram Dass in uh, Hawaii teaching Ramdas is now 87 in a wheelchair. Trudy and I went to join him and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, our dear friends, to teach together. And um, Ramdas mostly teaches love now. He says, I love everything. I love you and you and you. I love the whole group, every single one of you, you know, and your children and your parents, however they treated you. I still love them, you know. And on his big altar where he has, you know, Kuan Yin and the Buddha and Mother Mary and his Maharaji, his guru, and, you know, Gandhi and a hundred other figures. He also, he used to have Dick Cheney in the middle. Now it's, <laughs> the image has been replaced by um, Donald Trump, you know. And he says, of course, I love, he said, I love the walls and the ceilings and the lights, you know, and the shoes that are out there, um, in fact, he said, I, I, you know, I love this dirty carpet. Um, somebody, one of his students, got a piece of that dirty carpet and put it in a gold frame and sent it to him and said, put this on your altar, right? Which he did next to the picture of his guru. But anyway, we were sitting with Ramdas, and Trudy asked him, are you in much pain these days? Knowing that it was pretty much so. He's been in a wheelchair for 20 years. And he's a different kind of infection. So, yeah, my feet this is going on and she knew that and how about you know this yeah that hurts and do you have pain there oh yeah and then he paused for a minute he looked smiled this kind of amazing smile and he said I love my pain and it wasn't the masochistic kind of thing at all it was just it was like I love life I love everything 
um, and there's a kind of field around him that says who you are is not who you are is not your body as Thich Nhat Hanh said and he's 90 years old in his wheelchair after a stroke this body is not me you can honor it and love it and care for it but I'm not limited by this body I'm life without boundaries I've never been born and I've never died Look at the sky and the ocean filled with stars. Since before time, I am them. I have been free. Birth and death are only doors through which our spirits pass, sacred thresholds on our journey. Birth and death are the game of hide-and-seek. Come and hold my hand and we'll meet again and again in this dance. So this is where Vimlakirti is coming from. All these people are visiting him sick and he's giving a whole different level of teachings. And um, it's very playful, the way he teaches. Um, but this group of enlightened disciples of the Buddha don't want to go visit Vimlakirti because he's given them a hard time every time they go and talk with him. They'll sit with him and he'll ask them for their teachings. They'll tell them beautiful, some beautiful teachings and he'll say, well, not quite right. And then he'll correct them and say, this is still kind of dualistic. So I'll give you an example. Ananda, the Buddha's beloved attendant, and, and uh, one of the people that in the stories is supposed to be the most kind-hearted person. The Buddha himself had gotten sick, and it seemed that going out and getting some milk would be a good thing to help the Buddha. So um, Ananda goes out with his alms bowl, and in some cases, if you're asked by householders, is there anything I can offer you? Ananda would say, yes, you could give me some milk for the blessed one. So um, he goes through the town and Vimlakirti sees him and says, what are you doing? He said, I'm out to get milk for the Buddha who has an illness and I think it will help. And Vimlakirti says, an illness? Reverend Ananda the body of the Buddha is like diamonds. It's, in, it's beyond good and evil, beyond sick and well. Um, how could disease or discomfort touch such an awakened one? You insult him by going out for milk. You have to understand true liberation is not bound by these small concepts of body and healing and sickness. That's all duality. Vimla Kirti is a non-dual kind of guy. And Ananda shrinks back and says, all right, I, I take your point, but what am I to do? You know, it may all be non-dual, but what am I to do? And he goes on, he says, but the Buddha is, is like the vast sky and the shining stars. How could you get milk for that? You know, you don't understand what you're doing in this world. Ananda feels confused and sad and then all of a sudden the Buddha in his mind hears this conversation and he says Ananda the householder of Imlakirti speaks to you of deep truth yes nevertheless since the Buddha has appeared in this time as a human being with the difficulties that humans have he teaches the world by acting lowly and humble and therefore Ananda do not be ashamed and go and get me some milk. <laughs> and what you can hear in this, it's actually quite playful. The whole thing is playful. Like, what level do you want to dance on? 
You know, as Ramdas likes to say, you need to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number. And you kind of have to have them both in your heart at the same time. Um, and I remember during, there were some big demonstrations during Occupy that happened in Oakland. And our dear friends in Meditation Center, our sister brother Meditation Center, the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, which is the single most diverse Dharma Center I know on the planet. It's really quite wonderful and amazing. Anyway, they were right, they were close to downtown. And so they were out there with everybody Occupy. Um, and because it was all happening and there was also some concern about, how do we say it, the inequalities of our current financial system, the way that it is. Um, there were some demonstrators uh, at some of the big banks, and the banks closed their doors for that time when the demonstrations were happening. The people were still onside doing their work somewhat, but the doors were closed, but it's all glass there. And so they went outside the bank, the closest big bank to them, and they got... Um, a big stack of $1 bills and they stood by the door of the bank and they started giving money to everybody that walked up just to mess with the minds of the people inside the bank. You've come to the bank for money here. We should share it. Um, And this is a little bit of the spirit of Vimlakirti. He basically messes with you until you go, okay, I surrender. I see that there's something bigger that I have to pay attention to and you can be playful with it as well. So, um, they go to see Vimlakirti, um, uh, or they're about to go to see Vimlakirti. They haven't even gone there yet. And one of them says, well, you know, where does he reside and how does he sit? And they said, well, um, the seat that he takes, and there's a long description of the, the kind of seat that Vimlakirti takes, but um, the, the passage that I love the most is where Vimlakirti sits on the seat of love because it expands to all beings. And he rises up from the seat of love and he exudes or distributes the qualities of love um, to all that he touches. So he sits on the seat of love. Um, and, you know, here we are coming to practice together, as we do. Um, and the invitation to sit with loving awareness and attend to your own breath and to the emotions that arise, your sadness and your joy and your longing and your love, to attend to the way your mind makes stories, and then to come back and live in the reality of the present more fully, not so lost in those, so that you can be here for the person in front of you and the way that you drive and the things that you tend in your work um, and the things that you care about in the world, including yourself. Um, What is your seat? Is it a seat of love? You know, and here you learn these trainings not just for yourself, but also to see what it means to live with an awakened heart. So, someone who sits here wrote me a story um, of a shipyard he works with in Seattle. Typically, typically there are 700 people working at the yard. Twice a week, he leads a group sit where anyone in the yard and the company can meditate, followed by a talking stick check-in circle. circle. Racial and gender issues are being addressed. Now many of the trades start their shift with a short meditation and check-in. 
Um, there are trees being planted in what was a desolate yard. It's spotless. It feels alive. Today, it's a much safer place to work. And as you might expect, more profitability since they've implemented this whole human dharma approach. All has taken place since last year and so much has been gone on and only by bringing a few of the seeds that I learned here um, in my retreat. Um, I find it a really beautiful story. Um, but, you know, what it says um, is that when you plant seeds, beautiful seeds, as Vimla Kirti teaches, the world responds. I think it was Thoreau who said, convince you, me you have a seed there. You know, convince me you have a seed there, and I'm prepared to expect miracles. Because this is how it works. The seeds that we plant and, they wa- and we water or what will what will grow? Um, so, some of you know that um, Dennis Mukwege, if I say his right name right, um, was a physician who gave a speech um, to the UN decrying the hor- horror of mass rape in Congo, um, and he'd been tending a clinic and women who'd been raped and women who had all kinds of other medical problems for quite a long time. And because Congo is in such conflict, at some point after he came to the UN, the gunman invaded his home and attempted or threatened to kill him and his wife and daughters. He had guards who stopped them. um, And he left the Congo shortly thereafter. Um, And the poor women who lived all around the clinic um, sold their harvest and bought him a plane ticket to come back. And they said, you know, um, you've made our life livable and bearable, and we know that you feel that you're in danger. We will do what we can to protect you, and we're going to give of the little bit that we have, all of us, to make sure that you're part of our community. And it says something like in this text that if you live on the seed of love and if you plant those seeds, it's not just you, but something really mysterious happens in the world around you. And this is quite possible, possible for all of us. So then they do go to visit Vimlakirti to console the invalid, as it's said. Um, and one of the greatest of the disciples, Manjusri, goes um, and... Uh, asks Vimalakirti where he's been, and Vimalakirti says, well, I've been everywhere, you know, to the hell realms and the realm of the jealous gods. That's, by the way, Washington, D.C. You know, the hell realms, I'm sorry to say, are in Darfur and Syria, but some other places that we know that are closest is closer as well. I've been to all of those places. And they come in, and then one of the great enlightened people, monks around the Buddha, but these are all foils in this. It, um, um, one of his wisest disciples, Sariputra, comes in and says, where, where can we sit? There are no chairs. Um, and Vimlakirti looks at him, sort of teasing him, and says... Um, get the chairs it 
did you come here for the sake of the Dharma or did you come for the sake of a chair? What are you looking for? And Sariputra says, of course, the Dharma. You know, again, there's this sort of little back and forth. And then the Vimalakirti says, well, where are the best chairs in the great galaxies? And this one of the disciples said, oh, this Buddha who lives over there has magnificent thrones that are, you know, 84,000 feet high and they're covered with jewels and lotuses and peacock feathers and all these things. And he says, let there be chairs. And then by his own magic, the room expands so that a hundred thousand enlightened beings from all the galaxies around gather and sit in those chairs along with a few chairs for the guests who've arrived. So again, it, it really speaks to the possibility of imagination, but also the generosity of spirit, that you may not have anything, but if you open your mind and your heart when someone comes in, that makes the magic. It doesn't matter if they sit on the floor. If the heart and mind is open, people sit in the midst of something that's beautiful and, and magnificent. Um, and then, let me see. Here's the next little thing that happens. So the room expands um, to an inconceivably large size and all these, you know, Hundreds of thousands of enlightened beings on these vast thrones are seated around watching the watching the you know reality show or whatever it is um, the dialogue um, and then Vimalakirti is saying this is nothing he goes on Reverend Saraputra the Bodhisattva who lives in inconceivable liberation the liberation of all beings can pour into a single pore of his skin all the waters of the four great oceans without injuring the water animals such as fish, tortoises, tortoises, crocodiles, frogs, and other creatures. Um, Without them even being aware of a problem, the whole operation is visible without any injury or disturbance to the frogs and the alligators and all such things. Now, such a bodhisattva can reach his right hand and pick up a whole galaxy like this and and open it for you to see and understand and bring illumination to all the beings that are there. So this is the kind of story that it is, right? So Sariputra says, okay, um, I see that you're someone of some great possibilities, but why is this? What is this teaching us? Um, Poem from Mary Oliver. What can I say that I've not said before? So I'll say it again. The leaf has a song in it. Stone is the face of patience. Inside the river there's an unfinished story and you are somewhere in it and it will never end until all ends. Take your busy heart to the art museum in the chamber of commerce but take it also to the forest and the hills. The song you heard singing in the leaf when you were a child is singing still. I am of years lived so far, 74, and the leaf is still singing. And so she's speaking to the mystery that Vimalakirti is teaching, that when you see rightly, as the poet Hafez says, when you see rightly, the leaves on the trees become like pages in the holy books. 
And that you don't have to look any further than where you are to see that which is sacred and mysterious. I mean, how did we get into this human life? You think you're your body? Come on. You know, it changes. You have to take care of it. You rent it like Avis, right? You've got to turn it in at some point. But yes, you use it. But, I mean, it's not who we are. There's a spirit that was born into you and that will leave your body when you die. You'll see. You wait, right? Float out of your body, light, all that stuff. It happens to be true. You don't have to believe me, but when it happens, remember I told you. you (laughs) But you're not just this body and you're not just the conditioning you know, of your culture or your parents. I mean, those are, those are really small potatoes. Yes, they can make a lot of suffering in different ways when we believe them. But Vimla Kirti is saying, don't believe that. Believe something so much greater and more magnificent about who you are and what this world is and see it everywhere that you look. So then, two more things, let me see, and then we do our little ritual. Um, a goddess who lives in the house there, another enlightened being comes down to listen. She's in Sariputra said, how long have you been here? And she says, timeless, I've been with Vimalakirti since the beginning. And then Sariputra says, well, you know, um, I'm glad that you're here. Have you received anything of benefit? And she said, oh, he gives awakening blessings to everyone. And then Sariputra says, but then why are you still in a woman's body? I mean, don't you have to be a man to be fully awakened? There is that teaching, you know, in some Buddhist things. And I remember Deepama, who was this great woman, yogi and master that I studied with, um, quite an extraordinary being who'd mastered all the realms of meditation and compassion and loving kindness. She just was love. But she also had tremendous power. Um, and her teacher, Manindra, who was also a teacher of mine, they were together at some point. And, um, I mean, she was the kind of person, I never saw it, I kept wanting her to do something magic. Because her teacher said, oh yeah, I've seen her walk through walls, I've seen her appear and disappear, do all these things that, you know, one reads about. Anyway, at one point he was teaching, and he said, but you, you have to be a man to become a Buddha. You have to do that in a male body. And Deepama said, yeah, I can do anything a man can do. <laughs> so be quiet, you know. And it was really true. You could feel it. So in this, Sariputra is talking to her. And the goddess comes and she covers his body with flower petals. She says, here, Sariputra. And he says, wait, I'm a monk. I shouldn't have these flower petals. And she says, you're so caught up on what's pure and what's impure. Um, and I guess I'll read you. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, this is a version not in there by my old friend Rick Fields called the Short Sutra on the Meeting of the Buddha and the Goddess. And I read it because it's somehow a combination of something way beyond me too, you know. Um, um, this is women's liberation on steroids, let us say, okay. <laughs> Thus I have heard the Buddha was walking along the forest path, walking without arriving anywhere, or any thought of arriving, and lotuses shining with morning dew miraculously appeared under every step, soft as silk between the toes of the Buddha. When suddenly out of the turquoise 
guy dancing in front of his half-shut, inward-looking eyes, shimmering like a rainbow or a spider's web, transparent as the dew on a lotus flower, the goddess appeared, quivering like a hummingbird in the air before him. She, for she was surely as she as the Buddha could see, clearly with his eye of discriminating wisdom, was mostly red in color, though when the light shifted she flashed like a rainbow. She was naked except for the usual flower ornaments goddesses wear. Her long hair was deep blue, her two eyes fathomless pits of space, and her third eye a ring of fire. The Buddha folded his hands together and greeted the goddess thus, O goddess, why are you blocking my path? Before I saw you, I was happily going nowhere, and now I'm not sure where to go. You can go around me, said the goddess, twirling on her heels like a bird darting away, but just a little away, or you can come after me. This is my forest too, and you can't pretend I'm not here. With that, the Buddha sat, supple as a snake, solid as a rock beneath a Bodhi tree that sprang full leaf to shade him. Perhaps we should have a chat, he said. After years of arduous practice at the time of the morning star, I penetrated reality. And now, not so fast, Buddha. I am reality. The earth stood still. The oceans paused. The wind itself listened. And a thousand thousand arhats, bodhisattvas, dakinis magically appeared to hear what would happen in their conversation. I know I take my life in my hand, said the Buddha, but I am known as the fearless one, so here goes. And he and the goddess, without further words, exchanged glances. Light rays like sunbeams shot forth so bright that even Sariputra, the all-seeing one, had to turn away. And then they exchanged thoughts, and the illumination was bright as a diamond candle. And then they exchanged mind. And there was a great silence as vast as the universe that contains everything. And then they exchanged bodies and clothes. And the Buddha arose as the goddess. And the goddess arose as the Buddha. And so on back and forth for a hundred thousand kalpas of time. If you meet the Buddha, you meet the goddess. And if you meet the goddess, you meet the Buddha. Not only that, this, the Buddha is the goddess. And the goddess is the awakened one. And not only that, the Buddha is emptiness and the goddess is bliss. The goddess is emptiness and the Buddha is bliss. And this is what and what not you are. And it is true. So there was a little dialogue that happened there in the sutra between the goddess and in this case, in that case, it was Sariputra, um, where she switched bodies with him. He was a little more reluctant than the Buddha. Um, but she kind of did that little bit of a dance. And what it shows in the deepest way, you know, is that all our ideas of purity and impurity and, you know, all the kind of judgments of the heart and who all the notion of who's better and who's worse, all those kind of evaluations... Um, they're really a limitation. And it's possible instead to live with the eyes of love, to see every being that you meet as the Buddha, some of them a little bit more caught and deluded, 
as Ramdas says, he's put a variety of pictures in the middle of his altar. And I, I do my loving kindness practice and I, I picture some of the despots of the world. Um, and I include them and I say, may you be free from hatred. May you be free from fear. May you be free from delusion. You know, may you too awaken the heart of love. And I can wish that for anybody. I can wish that for anybody. And so this text invites us to live in a different reality and also to to see this reality wherever we go because people are serving one another. In Even as we do this talk, there have been a million, ten million acts of goodness in the Bay Area. People cooking, you know... Um, grilled cheese sandwiches for their children for dinner who really didn't want to eat the broccoli, right? And people stopping at the red lights so that you can safely pass through the green or standing in line at the market in a civilized way so that other people who were there before them. We do this all the time. And we tend to focus on what's problematic. Poem by Laszlo Slomowitz. A man is running hard to catch the bus that just left. It's picking up speed, but he pulls even, <sighs> running and wraps on its side, and a woman by the window yells to the driver who stops and opens the accordion door, but the man does not get on. He points back to an old woman who's not run a step in a very long time, shuffling toward the bus. Nor does he leave until he's helped her up both steps and then walks back slowly, still breathing hard from the fast run toward us who are waiting for a different bus. What can a group of strangers like us do at a time like this? A time in its own way, like when Jesse Owens roared by them all in the Olympics and everyone stood in the stadium and applauded. Gestures like that all the time from people. This is how we can live. And this is really what what uh, Vimla Kirti points to. Again from Mary Oliver. I think of the Buddha's last day. Every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness and send up the first signal a white fan streaked with pink and violet and green. An old man, he laid down between two sal trees. He might have said anything, though it was knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward and settles over the field. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretch forward to listen. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his vast and difficult life. Slowly beneath the branches, he raised his head and looked into the face of that expectant crowd. Make of yourself a light, he said as his last words. Make of yourself a light.
I've never told this story in this way in a teaching before, um, and I'm not quite sure if it fits at this time, but I hope so. Um, Yeah, I enjoyed doing it. And um, I think at the very best, you know, when we had our little break and you remembered something that was beautiful, um, that the turning of the seasons um, and the beginning of a new year does get us to stop and listen and look anew and maybe look inside at what matters um, and live in a fiercer and more illuminated way. So the last thing I'd like us to do tonight, and I have to get the help of a number of people here, is to pass around these red cords. Um, So just take these and give a, a a clump of them at the end of the rows to people um, and then they'll pass them down the rows. You don't have to give them to people but just spread the clumps around. Give, give everybody 20 of them and they'll pass them to 20 people near them. Um, so this is quite optional. Um, but I'll tell you that what we're going to do and we might go five minutes over or something. So if you're... Oh, I forgot to say at the end of the Vimlakirti Sutra, Sariputra is sitting there and he's thinking now, how are you going to feed all these people? And Vimlakirti looks at him and says, you mean you came here for teachings and now you're worried about what's for dinner? But this is what the mind will do. I love it in there because I know everybody who comes on retreat, at some point they'll be sitting and some amazing or difficult thing will be happening and they'll think, I wonder what they're going to serve for lunch because the mind has no pride. You know, and the text really illuminates this. So I'll talk about these. um, um, Yeah, just give a clump of ten to somebody and they'll pass it on to other people. Do people in the back have them yet? Raise your hand if you don't have them yet. This, that side over there, you you can see where they need to go. Um, So if one is to become a bodhisattva, um, and that, of course, is your own choice, one of the things uh, that uh, is part of it is to make a vow or set an intention. And my favorite modern bodhisattva vow from Diane Ackerman, she writes, In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, and an architect of peace. Not bad for a little bodhisattva vow. So what I want you to do before we do this blessing cord is I want you to reflect for a minute on this night. It's not a New Year's resolution, but it's something in a way deeper than that. If you were to set the compass of your heart and say, what is it that really matters in the way that I live? What would that intention or vow be this evening? And it could be very simple. It doesn't have to be a long poem. It might be as simple as, I vow to be kind. But take a moment to quiet and reflect. What would it be?
for one often comes into the temple to reset the compass of your heart, to remind yourself. It's all a reminder, really, of what you know most deeply. And now, having reflected on it, if you have a little piece of paper, write it down, or borrow a piece of paper or pen from somebody near you, or put it in your phone, it helps to do that. And this beautiful goddess of compassion, Kuan Yin, um, she'll put it in her phone too. There you go. She's listening to the cries of the world through social media and setting her vow. So write it down if you can in any way that works for you. Anyone still need cords? I think they're covered now. We're good. One person in the back. I apologize, I understand. You're finished now. Got it, been there, done that, finished. Yeah, I know. But Vimla Kirti had a good time, why can't we, right? And now having written down um, the next step, there's two more steps, I'd invite you, if you're comfortable, very quietly and without ancillary conversation about it without talking about it to turn to a person sitting near you next to you and listen to them tell you read or tell you what their intention is and then when you're quiet you tell the tell yours to them and it's a beautiful thing to hear it and again by writing it and speaking it it makes it come more alive in the heart so go ahead and do it not a conversation but a quiet listening two or if you need two, three, if it's, you know, more convenient. Each person, one talks and one, then the other talks. finish up kind of sweet isn't it to hear that it's not the kind of conversation we usually have in in the Sufi tradition it's called a sobat it's a conversation of the heart to listen to somebody's intention 
um, really respectfully and then to allow your own to be revealed to someone else. So now, having done that, we get to make our blessing protection cords. And uh, so let me say something for those of you who might be unfamiliar. And again, this is completely optional. So um, we're using a cord or a string, which is part of the rituals that are used across Buddhist Asia, all the way from Afghanistan to Japan and Southeast Asia so forth. It's used in weddings and in healing and blessings and all kinds of things and for protection. Um, And the reason it's this red color is it's considered to be one thread from the robe of a monk or a nun. Um, I have one from the Dalai Lama. Um, So you wear your robes into the marketplace. Someone said you're basically a monk or a nun in drag, you know. Your real home is the temple um, but you're in the marketplace like Vimalakirti carrying the illuminated heart with you. So, um, and somebody, I did this with a famous Tibetan Lama many years ago. Somebody raised their hand and said, these are called protection cords. What do they protect you from? And he said, why, yourself, of course, the main <laughs> protection that people need. So we need to tie three knots in them to finish tonight. Hold it up. The first knot is the knot of refuge. And for some in the Buddhist tradition, it will be refuge in the Buddha. To see the Buddha in every being you meet. Refuge in Dharma, which means the truth. To speak the truth and see what's true and honor it in this life. Refuge in Sangha, the community that we can't do it alone. That we're interwoven in the field of life. But for you, it may be the sacred in any other form. It might be um, a religious or non-religious form. But hold your cord and reflect on what is your deep refuge for yourself that's holy or sacred. That you trust to turn to, to illuminate. And when you're clear on your refuge, to take that refuge, then tie a knot in the cord to see every being as a potential Buddha in front of you or however you manifest your refuge. To take refuge in that which is sacred. Knot number two is the knot of compassion. And as you hold your cord, reflect on the teachings of non-harming, that we can move through this world, and if we dedicate ourselves to compassion for ourselves and others, then in word and deed, we can act and speak in ways that foster well-being and harmony for ourselves and others, and avoid those actions that cause harm. So reflect on a dedication to compassion. The world so longs for it. A care for all beings. Compassion as a... It's more than empathy. It's the movement of the heart to care for yourself and others, to alleviate suffering and bring well-being.
anything in whatever way you find yourself drawn to make a vow of or an intention of living with a compassionate heart to care for living beings tie the second knot in the cord to refrain from causing harm and already this gives you dignity and liberty and joy and awakening to do so and then the final knot is what you just spoke to another what you wrote is the intention or the vow the sacred intention that you made coming to the temple tonight and so remembering what you intended and what you spoke and wrote tie the third knot in the cord which symbolizes your commitment to this intention and now your blessing protection cord is fully activated if you would like to wear it even for a little while you can either put it around the back of your neck and let it hang down don't tie it on yet or you can wrap it around your wrist two or three times and let the two ends hang down And then in a moment when we end I'll invite those sitting near you someone sitting near you to tie yours on with a silent blessing and you can do the same but not quite yet. So so I want us just to sit for a minute in silence or two. with all the measure of tears in this world and the difficulties of human incarnation in individual and collective ways and with all the unbearable beauty and magnificence of this world magnificence of this world you oh nobly born start the sutras you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones remember the great heart of love and compassion that was born in you trust it rest in it make of yourself a light So you can now turn to a person near you and they'll tie on your cord if you wish. Drive safely out there. It's dark. Be polite on the roads. There's lots of people. Take the extra cookies if there are any left for your friends or children you run into. Come back to Spirit Rock in the new year. 
and go from the temple carrying something beautiful that's always been inside you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good night.